Hello and uh, welcome to a new episode of Africa is a Country Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs, streaming from upstate New York. And my co-host is Will Shoki, and he's streaming from Johannesburg in South Africa. AIAC Talk, or Africa is a Country Talk, is a weekly talk and interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday at 7 p.m. East African time, 5 p.m. in Dakar, uh, or 6 p.m. in Johannesburg. Our show is produced, as always, by Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. This is episode 40. We have reached well, 40 under 40. <laughs> we don't qualify for that anymore. 40, you know those 40 under 40 things that nobody No, reads. we don't. We're past that. We passed that. On today's show, we tackle Africa's long and evolving relationship with Asia. As Will wrote in the promo for the show, before the boring, well, let me pause. As Will wrote in the promo for this show, before the boring neutrality of the global south, we're going to get canceled for that, there was the counter-hegemonic posture of the third world. That boring line, by the way, got some Twitter reaction, so... I suppose we'll enjoy that. <laughs> love aside, what happened to Afro-Asia? Our guests, more on them later, are Chris Lee, who's a professor of history, Bina Ben Abdallah, who's a political scientist, and Abdul Rahim Lema, who is an international relations and politics scholar. And as usual, if you missed our show last week, we continued exploring the concept of belonging through two sets of artistic works. The first one was a new film on a Libyan dissident directed by Khalid Shamis. Uh, the film is about his father, who was an opponent of Gaddafi, and it's during the rounds of the festival circuit. So you can check that out somewhere online, wherever you are. And the other was an exhibition on the Black experience created by Cedric Brown, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Fellows on Racial Equity. And it was co-curated by Odysseus Chirinza, who's a director of the Gallery Moment Johannesburg. So for that episode, we were joined by Khalid, Cedric, and Odysseus to discuss their works. And the whole episode is available on our YouTube channel. And subscribe, as usual, to our Patreon for all the episodes from our archive and to support our work in general. Now, for today's show, uh, it just so happens that Ethiopia is back in the news. And this time, it's for pro-government protests denouncing Western influence and meddling. Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abi Ahmed, who was once a darling of the West, I mean, the man won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, famously, or infamously rather, in his Technicolor jacket, is now turning against the West. This after the United States placed economic and security sanctions on Ethiopia over the government's military intervention in Tigray, which many human rights groups are saying is starting to resemble a campaign of ethnic cleansing. We won't have time to analyze all of that now and here, but our viewers should do well to check out our past episode featuring Eleni Zantim Selek, which was on Ethiopia. And what Eleni did was provide a long historical background on the political crisis today. So what's interesting about what's happening in Ethiopia at the moment is that as Ethiopia is distancing itself from the United States and the West in general, it also has a strengthening relationship with China. So a recurring placard at these protests in Addis Ababa was full the dam, 
which is a reference to Ethiopia's Grand Renaissance Dam project, which is opposed by Egypt and Sudan, but backed and partially financed by China. China, of course, notoriously built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, and it is financing a new headquarters for the African Center for Disease Control, also located in Addis Ababa. Now, just a very quick aside, if, if the Chinese are interested in, in building headquarters for the Pan-African Parliament, which at the moment is based in this old convention center in Madrid here in Johannesburg, I would absolutely support it. My, my suspicion is that one of the reasons there's been so much fighting over the last couple of days is that the, the dignitaries are in an uninspiring location. So we need the help of the Chinese to, to give them some inspiration. Um, but jokes aside, and this could be to overstate it, but what's happening in Ethiopia right now feels like an example of the Cold War-like diplomatic and geopolitical tensions we see playing out elsewhere on the continent and in the world. Now, I could be overstating, I could be oversimplifying, but fortunately today we have guests who actually know what they're talking about. So to try and help us understand not only China's relationship to Africa, but Africa's relationship to Asia as a whole, we're going to be joined by Christopher J. Lee, Lina Benabdala, as well as Abdul Rahim Lema. And I'm sure we'll find out how this relationship with Asia started out differently and how it's evolved with complexity. So let's get right to it. A reminder before that to hit the like and subscribe button, as well as to head over to our Patreon to check out all of the episodes in our archive and to support Africa as a country's work. All right, so our first guest then, is uh, Christopher Lee, um, an associate professor of history and Africana studies at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania. He's the author of six books, including of relevance for today's show, Making a World After Empire, The Bandung Moment and Its Political Afterlives, which he's holding it up <laughs> in 2010. Um, apparently that was, there's a second edition that is that came out in, in uh, 2019. Um, so why don't we start uh, with this question, Chris? Just tell us, uh, for people who don't remember Bandung, what, what was that uh, all about and why why is that meeting significant in, in the history of the relationship um, between Africa and Asia? Sure. Well, let me thank you both for, first for inviting me to, to, to be on the program. It's great to be here. Um, but yeah, just to get into the, the Bandung Conference, formerly known as the Asia-Africa Conference, uh, it took place in April 1955 um, for a week from April 18th to, to 24. Uh, it had 29 um, countries from Asia and Africa, uh, including the Middle East. And um, it basically was a diplomatic meeting uh, during this important period of transition of the 1950s where you had uh, essentially empires in the process of collapsing. You have this you know, trend of decolonization, but you also have this uh, rise of a new set of um, power relations through the Cold War. So between the United States and the Soviet Union, but then also eventually the, the People's Republic of China. So it was this, this period of transition in multiple ways. Um, the, the countries that, that met in Bandung and it should be said too that Bandung is this city outside of Jakarta on the island of Java in Indonesia. Um, maybe not an obvious place to have a meeting of this kind, but just to say that uh, you know the 
the Bandung meeting, you know, it was it was initially intended to be one addressing different crises in Southeast Asia, but also in, in Asia more generally. So among them, um, the tensions between North and South Vietnam um, following uh, the decolonization of French Indochina. Um, you also have the conflict on the, the Korean peninsula between, between North and South Korea. Um, but these initial, you know, these initial crises that were found in Asia um, were seen as part of a broader situation that post-colonial countries were encountering. That is to say that, again, they were finding themselves, uh, you know, in this process of gaining independence, which was exciting. On the other hand, you know, there were these new dynamics emerging, um, ideological ones um, between Western liberal democracies, the United States, and then the Soviet bloc uh, and communism. So the, the Bandung meeting was very much a moment of, of trying to articulate a future for post-colonial Asia and post-colonial Africa. And, you know, not to say that that was an easy thing to do, um, but just to say that the, the meeting itself was tremendously symbolic. Um, you had figures like uh, Gamal Nasser of Egypt, Warhalal Nehru of India, Joe and Live from the PRC, of course, of course the, the host Sukarno of Indonesia. Um, you also had uh, the African-American novelist Richard Wright um, attend as an observer and, and wrote one of the most important accounts of the meeting, The Color Curtain, uh, that came out in 1956. So it's, it's this, even though it was a diplomatic meeting, it became a cultural moment. And it uh, you know, has gained a certain mythology since 1955. Um, perhaps I should stop there, I could keep going. Uh, but it, just to su suffice to say that you know, in, in, in basic terms, it was a diplomatic meeting among countries, um, 29 Asian African countries, but over time it's gained much more uh, meaning. And this is something that can be debated um, and something that scholars debate, you know, was, was Bandung this, you know, shining moment or is it overplayed? Um, is there too much mythology? Is this mythology appropriate in some way? Um, I mean, here we have, I, I see you're putting up images of the, of the conference itself. Um, you know, one thing I'll say just briefly about, you know, connecting to the broader theme of Afro-Asianism, it is important to note that of the countries, in, of the 29 countries in attendance, only six were from the continent of Africa. And so, you know, the, the agenda, as I initially pointed out, was tilted towards Asia and, and tilted in particular towards, towards Southeast Asia. But it is important to note that even if Afro-Asianism or one variation of Afro-Asianism started in Asia, that I think the destination of Afro-Asianism was very much Africa. And we see this continuing up to the present um, in different ways through especially China-Africa relations, of course, but um, but also in other ways, India-Africa relations, um, you know, things of this nature. So, to ask a follow-up um, before we 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 get into the question of what the destination of Bandung was, I want to I want to touch on what you mentioned earlier. Why Bandung? Why was that city in Indonesia chosen to host this conference? It's a good question. I mean, I think I think one reason is simply that. Um, 
it was a city that that uh, for which security could be provided. I mean, this is a major diplomatic meeting, the largest, I mean, it was advertised as the largest meeting of its kind in world history up to that point. Um, I mean, there can be debate about that, of course, but in terms of the delegations um, and the, the, the representation of those delegations, um, you know, basically the argument was that, um, you know, the, the, the countries in attendance, you know, represented much of the world's population, you know, over a billion people. And so the upshot is that, you know, it is important to think about this as an important diplomatic meeting. Security was important. If you look at photographs of the meeting, there's a strong Indonesian military presence. And so I think one reason is simply that, that the city of Bandung was, was in a sense more easily secured than say the larger city of Jakarta. Um, it should be said too that, that Bandung, it's a beautiful city. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got a kind of local feel to it that would be appealing for a conference, especially a conference that's a week long. Um, it's also a university town. Uh, uh, Sukarno had received his university education there. Um, yeah, here you can see some of the, you know, the level of security, but also, you know, it's important to note that, you know, this wasn't a secretive diplomatic meeting. You had Indonesians coming out onto the streets and, you know, to see leaders. And this, in this motorcade, you can see uh, Sukarno, of course, wearing the fez. And then uh, the premier of the People's Republic of China, Zhou Enlai, who um, was a very important diplomat for the PRC um, and ranked uh, just below uh, Mao Zedong, the, the, the chair, um, of the of the People's Republic of of um, China, so uh, this gives you a sense of the kind of spectacle that the that the Bandung meeting had um, in April 1955. So. I think it's interesting that that you just sort of in passing mentioned um, Sukarno, but I but it it I think it's fascinating at that point. I suppose um, he was seen as a kind of you know sort of he was he's communist, right? So he was he represented a certain kind of radical politics um, at that at that moment, and maybe to just make a connection there, there's also there's also something here about the period, uh, this long history of Africa, Africa Africans and Asians, and this kind of solidarity politics go further back. Um, I was reading I was reading this week, for example, that Ho Chi Minh, when he was a young sailor, uh, he was he he was in the U.S. Um, and he lived briefly in New York City. In fact, I think he lived in Harlem, and he had attended meetings of Marcus Garvey's UNI, UNIA, and he was impressed with Pan-Africanism. So it's not like it's not like Bandung. I mean, two things, I suppose. It's not like in terms of a Pan-African. There's the sort of the connections with Pan-African, like where it's going to end up. Um, that those connections they do predate Bandung. And as I also said, there's also a kind of fervent of a sort of left-wing politics. Which is uh, which is sort of it's a, it's entangling. I don't know if that's the right word. Like yeah. these kind of young Asian and African nationalists in kind of the first half of the century. Yeah, you're you're raising a number of important themes here, and so I mean, just just to draw out a few of them. I mean, specific to Ho Chi Minh. I mean, Ho Chi Minh is this fascinating person who you know had this complicated life, but an amazing one at the same time. And and just to pick up on that thread, I mean, he. It a lot of his early life is is sort of under a cloud of 
of mystery, but there is this there is this great article by Brent Hayes Edwards, uh, professor of literature at Columbia, um, who wrote the practice of diaspora and is you know really important in African American studies. Um, he wrote an article called "The Shadow of Shadows" that's basically about Ho Chi Minh and Harlem, or at least part of it is. And there's also you know in addition to you know make, having this connection with um, you know Marcus Garvey, it's also it's also understood that he had some connection with Korean nationalists at the time. And this is when Korea was under Japanese colonial control. Um, also, it's said that Ho Chi Minh witnessed a, a lynching in the American South. So there, there are these details that are really fascinating, but also unconfirmed. But just to say, but but to bring out your broader point, I mean, I think it is you know important to note that obviously Bandung isn't necessarily the starting point of all of this. And in fact, you know, connected radical politics, it's important to, to think about the 1927 League Against Imperialism meeting that the Comintern uh, sponsored. <clears throat> I mean, Lenin was very much about black liberation <clears throat> and, and um, you, know, uh, you know, spreading communist revolution um, around the world. So, and, uh, you know, this of course is before Lenin's early death, but but it is important to to think about you know the role of the communist international in terms of you know connecting um, anti-colonial nationalists, um, anti-colonial socialists, and and of course you know involving you know activists from Africa and Asia. And so the 1927 League Against Imperialism meeting is 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 a, is, a, is another important moment um, in this history. The main difference between you know the League Against Imperialism meeting and the the Bandung meeting is that Ban the the thing about Bandung is that you know you had countries that were independent, um, with some exceptions. That is to say, Sudan didn't become that Sudan sent a delegation, but of course Sudan didn't become independent until 1956. The Gold Coast sent a delegation, but of course wasn't independent until 1957. So you did have some delegations, some countries that were on that on the would be independent in the in the near horizon, but weren't quite independent yet. But there is a fundamental difference between being, you know, an activist, you know, leading a, a liberation organization versus, you know, a political statesman leading a country. And so that's why the, you know, that is a fundamental difference between the League Against Imperialism meeting in 1927 and the, the Banzung meeting in 1955. But just to build on that too, you know, it is important to think about how, you know, Bandung wasn't simply, um, the, the politics were complex in terms of left and right, you know, um, radical or, or more nationalist. Um, I think that, you know, basically the leaders who attended Bandung had different sets of ambitions. And so it's it's very difficult to you know place them all in one category. Yeah, this is an image here of, of Nehru, of course, in the center, but also Gamal Nasser. Um, just to talk briefly about the two of them, one thing that's important about Nehru is he he's one of the few who attended both the League Against Imperialism meeting in 1927 and the 1955 Bandung conference, and so he. He very much is a person of connection, and you know, sort of bringing together these two worlds—a um, world of activism with a world of, of post-colonial 
diplomacy and policy. Um, it should be said specifically this photo. One reason I really like this photo is that, you know, Nehru is very much a elder statesman at this point. He's in his 60s. Um, whereas Nasser uh, had, you know, effectively had just come to power in Egypt. Um, he's in his late 30s. And, and basically, um, you know, he's, he's finding a sense of, of guidance, a sense of mentorship um, with, with Nehru. And so it's important to think about these meetings as not just a meeting of equals, but also the ways in which um, you know, there's a kind of, uh, you know, passing of the torch perhaps, or, you know, kind of mentorship politics that's also occurring, um, that kind of thing. So. And speaking, I mean, speaking of meetings, sorry to jump in here, but, no. you know, Bandung, Bandung eventually, you know, it, it, it concludes and there's a wave of decolonization and, you know, not really much concretely comes out of that moment, but its spirit sort of lives on in these other meetings that happen. So there's, yes. in 1961, the convening of the non-aligned movement in Belgrade. Yes. In 1966, there's the Tri-Continental Conference in Havana. So yes. was, was Bandung the moment that really sort of spurred this third worldism politics beyond states and great leaders to more popular movements, or is it overstating yeah. to say that its spirit was lived on in these other formations? Well, certainly, I mean, you know, there's a lot of scholarly debate about this. I mean, I think that it's indisputable that, that Bandung is important in terms of, you know, crystallizing what the third world might look like, um, or third what third worldism might look like. Um, it should be said that, you know, of course, with the, the non-aligned movement, um, and its founding in 1961, it was a different configuration of, of nation states. So uh, to be very specific, um, one country that fell out that, that wasn't part of the non-aligned movement is the PRC. Basically, China fell away. And that's one reason for that is that you had uh, Chinese-Indian tensions in the intervening years between uh, Bandung and, and Belgrade in 1961. So it's, this is this gets to another point that even though you had this you know sort of Bandung spirit and third world solidarity emerge from from 1955, it's not to say that everyone got along. <laughs> um, you know, China and India, you know, very ambitious countries, you know, found themselves at odds, and particularly because they shared a border, um, and you you had outright military conflict between both countries and and. Um, uh, in, in the early 1960s. So, so basically the non-aligned movement didn't involve the China, didn't involve the PRC. Um, and then you have, as you were pointing out, you have the Havana meeting in 1966, which of course brings in Latin America, brings in Cuba, Cuban revolution. And so it's another configuration. So, you know, I think the best way to think about it is, is not that there's not to create a hierarchy of, you know, this is the most important meeting or, you know, this one's less important, but rather to think about the ways in which, you know, third worldism evolved and how it incorporated, uh, you know, uh, different geographies, um, how some, you know, countries came into conflict with one another and that, you know, created, um, you know, different concepts of third worldism. You know, I want to say something quickly too. I mean, because there are all these interesting details, it's, it is important to note that, 
there were unofficial delegations at Bandung. And, and one reason I want to bring this up is that Moses Katane of the SACP of the South African Communist Party um, was at Bandung. And um, he was also there with, uh, with uh, Ishmael Kachalia of the Indian National Congress and, and the ANC, the, the Congress Alliance. And the reason I bring this up is that the anti-apartheid struggle was um, discussed at the Bandung meeting, even though there was no delegation, formal delegation from South Africa. And I think it is an, an important moment um, for thinking about the globalization of the anti-apartheid struggle. That Bandung was discussed at the, that that uh, apartheid was discussed at the Bandung meeting, and that apartheid South Africa and the and the issue of racism were elements of the final communique at the Bandung meeting. Also, the Palestinian situation as well, the 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 refugee situation after the Nakba in 1948. So, which is just to say that you know even though we might claim that that Bandung didn't maybe accomplish much in concrete terms, I think there was this identification of issues that needed to be that needed to be confronted um, in the post-colonial world in uh, you know in the in the third world and among these were Palestine and apartheid South Africa. So um, so yeah when Katane returned from Bandung to to South Africa, you know there this was Written about in leftist leftist publications like like New Age, um, so there is a South African connection to Bandung, even though there wasn't an official South African delegation to Bandung. Thanks for that, Chris, and thank you so much for this. We we hope you'll you'll stick around because we want to bring you back later when we talk about whether or not the legacy of Bandung really has permeated into the present moment. But we want to bring on our next guest who is Lina Ben-Abdallah, who is going to help us unpack that present moment. And she's an assistant professor of politics and international affairs at Wake Forest University. Her research focuses on international relations theory, foreign policy, critical theories of power, and knowledge production and hegemony in the global south. And she's the author of Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production, and Network Building in China-Africa Relations, which was published last year with the University of Michigan Press. So, Lina, thank you very much for, for joining us on the show today. And we've just heard of what Chris was describing now, this mid-20th century moment, how China eventually sort of fell away from this kind of third world posture and when you think about China then and you think about China now, a lot of people are sort of claiming that the US and China are bringing us closer to another Cold War. So when statements like that are, are, are trumpeted around, do you think they're overblown or is there a little bit of truth to that? Well, thank you uh, uh, both for the invitation. This is a wonderful opportunity to talk about these, uh, these, these themes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think the spirit of Bandung, um, in, in many ways still lives in the present moment when it comes to China Africa relations. Um, if anything, it lives in a very discursive way, in a very performative way. Uh, but as we all know, 
those um, aesthetics and the, 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 the discourses and, and performances and the spectacle, as, as uh, uh, Chris said earlier, are all important um, to politics. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also interesting that, that you bring up the question of, of the cold, uh, quote unquote, new Cold War. Um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I, I see um, analysis that kind of talk about US-China relations today in, in those terms, and, and of course I can't help but um, basically see the, the differences in the context in, in what was going on. Um, um, I want to go back to the Bandung conference in, in 1955. Um, although Algeria was uh, still not an independent country, it still had quite a bit of, 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 of uh, uh, terrain to go uh, in terms of its uh, anti-colonial war. Um, there was a delegation uh, that attended the, the Bandung uh, conference. And um, right as uh, uh, the, the conference ended, um, the main um, newspaper at the time uh, called Al Mujahid uh, wrote an article uh, basically reporting on the conference. And the way that, that, it, that it was described in the conference was basically this um, moment where Afro-Asian uh, peoples and nations are able to uh, gather and uh, in the absence of um, the main powers. And in and, and, and the quote from Mujahid, it basically says U uh, US, European and Russian powers. Um, so there was in a way a defiance of uh, global great power politics that came out of Bandung that was celebrated by people, that this is a, a moment of defiance, that this is a moment, however symbolic it is, it's a place to meet and talk about politics at the time in the absence of uh, being sort of hand-held uh, by these great powers. This isn't the case today. Uh, it, it, it will be really difficult to imagine a, a, a meeting of, of a sort that China doesn't, you know, get a seat in. Um, at. Um, it would be difficult to imagine, in fact, as of today, um, the largest number of African leaders, uh, this is presidents and heads of states, uh, who have gathered at a meeting um, together is actually at the China-Africa Forum of Cooperation. Um, so this gives you an idea. So I, I would have a hard time th thinking Al-Mujahid would come back and write something like that about a, a meeting that, that, that would, would, that would say, you know, thank God there's no China and the US. I, I, I actually don't see that happening, right? Um, so the, the context in that way are, you know, are a little bit different, but, you know, but there's also this irony that, um, yeah, I mean, much of that Afro-Asian solidarity in the 1960s fell apart because of Sino-Soviet divides. Um, it wasn't necessarily because of U.S.-Soviet Union competition. It was actually the Sino-Soviet divide that brought down a lot of that solidarity. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. So um, maybe the short well, answer to the Cold yeah, War. That was a great answer, actually, and, and I, I love how you link how you linked it back to this by using the using the example of Algeria to kind of make those connections. That was a brilliant answer. So just to connect to that, as you said, like today, everybody's gathering at a meeting because as you said it, I was like, yep, that's that's where, that's the next one. That's the new Bandung, if you want, under different conditions with its own motives. 
can you you were quoted in an article in the um, South China Morning Post um, detailing uh, China's funding of government buildings all across Africa, which is to get to why all these people are at these meetings. Can you just say a little bit about that, about what China does now in Africa, because it's now the sort of dominant kind of representative, if you want, of Asia. Um, and what do you think China's motivations are for, for, or what are their motives for these initiatives? If you could, if you could speculate on it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that China is playing a dominant role in terms of building infrastructure uh, all around the continent of Africa. Uh, what's kind of interesting about that infrastructure is that, um, I mean, what, you know, when you build a road or a bridge, um, uh, a lot of people benefit from it. Or when you build a power grid, um, people that benefit from it can be local people, can be foreign companies coming in to set up shop, can be transnational enterprises, whatever. Um, so it's not, it, it, you know, a, build, a road or a bridge, it just doesn't belong to whoever built it. So um, it, it's it's important to know that, you know, in a way framing Chinese built infrastructure in Africa as a threat, is it, it just doesn't make sense really to, to, to use it for a, a kind of a, um, a broad brush to paint it all with the same color. Um, now, in terms of infrastructure buildings that, uh, are re related uh, straightforward to the to, to government buildings and those basically critical or sensitive infrastructure um, deals. Now it's it's kind of interesting um, because the way that this has been reported is that there's a shortcut. Uh, essentially, every time that there's a, a news piece that a Chinese state-owned enterprise is building, usually given as a gift. A parliament building or a foreign ministry building or renovating uh, one of these critical building infrastructure projects for African countries, um, you know, there's there's a shortcut sort of insinuation that there's some corruption going on, that there is some insidious uh, deal, uh, basically, that China is going to um, essentially uh, tap um, the building and that there's going to be uh, all kinds of sort of uh, allegations and accusations of, of, of spying. Uh, we've seen that with the building in, of the African Union uh, headquarters in Addis Ababa. Um, this was a building that was completed in 2012, uh, given as a gift as in terms of the building uh, by, by China to, to, to the African Union. Um, and we keep seeing almost every year, um, you'll see Le Monde or you'll see some other newspaper, uh, typically from Europe, bringing in a story about uh, how uh, Huawei uh, wired uh, the, 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 the building and how that there is um, uh, issues of surveillance and issues of, of basically uh, listening in on conversations and, and all that. Um, so th th those are the conversations around the buildings is basically who is uh, wiring it. And the second thing is, what are Africans given in return for these buildings? And again, there are speculations about what is it that we're, we're paying these the Chinese companies with? Um, yeah, so-, so that and, and ask about exactly that point. Um, one of the big sort of things that is peddled whenever there's a new infrastructure project is that they say that the Chinese are embarking on these uh, to sort of set up a debt trap. So the idea is that China makes a generous, provision of capital for these projects to be built. And they seem to be no sort of strings attached. You know, they're not attached to conditions like IMF loans would be. Um, but then the, the trick is that in the end, 
when African countries sort of default on debt repayments or whatever it is, then China is going to swoop in and, and seize on these assets. And, you know, recently there's there's a welcome body of scholarship that shows how this is just not true, but it's it's gained so much traction. And I think that in, in the mainstream sort of consciousness, a lot of people believe that this is genuinely something that the Chinese government is doing. So um, how, I mean, why has this myth become so popular and why is it sort of treated as a, as a piece of conventional wisdom about Sino-Africa relations? I mean, it, it depends on who you ask, but, uh, you know, Orientalism is a, is a very quick, uh, you know, answer to that because, you know, ever since we, we saw this reboosting of China-Africa relations in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, almost every month there's a new concept that has some something attached to diplomacy. So we saw checkbook diplomacy and then we saw, I mean, it was one after the other and then the vaccine diplomacy, the mask diplomacy and the debt trap diplomacy, all these things are, are very um, recent concepts uh, of, of the last year, year and a half. We will keep seeing a lot of these terms that just attach the word diplomacy and 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 they and they are basically they they insinuate again corruption they insinuate insidious you know um, uh, uh, nefarious uh, motives by China and also um, you know sort of infantilizes uh, African leadership for falling in these traps. I mean, I mean, who falls in the trap, right? I mean, it's it's not it's not they're not making these traps essentially. They're not agents of what's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, um, the scholarly community is pretty much uh, there's almost basically like very little debate that this debt trap diplomacy does not describe China-Africa relations in many ways. Uh, this isn't to say that there are no issues. This isn't to say that there are no challenges to China's financial and the, 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 the financial sustainability of Chinese projects in Africa. Of course, there's a lot to, 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 to talk about there. But in terms of the concept itself, it takes, you know, it became so viral because it's this quick way of describing, it's just packed with all these um, uh, uh, insinuations and meanings. And, and I think um, if you look at it, like these concepts are not Africa uh, made, they, they're, they're not generated in the continent, they're not coming from China, but they are these quick shorthand ways of describing um, China's diplomacy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think um, uh, to, to, to the question of um, where, where do we, where do we, where we at with the debt trap diplomacy, I think it is basically clear uh, if we read scholarship that um, there, of course, we don't have any certainty at 100%, but there's really no evidence to back the argument that the Chinese government is on purpose um, uh, giving loans to African governments that are too big for them to pay back. And in a way, these loans are going to lead to um, essentially conceding uh, assets to Chinese companies. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of in short the answer. And I mean, coming now to to what the purpose of the African countries on the other end are, I think, you know, we 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 shouldn't sort of, you know, it's not as if China at the end of all of this is some sort of uh, misunderstood protagonist. Um, and it seems that one thing that is it's certainly influencing African countries is providing it uh, a vision for development for themselves. So 
a lot of African countries are increasingly inspired by the Chinese regime of authoritarian state capitalism as being a viable development and growth model that they can they can emulate. So in terms of that, I mean, how how widespread is that on the continent uh, in your in your impression, this idea that African countries look to China as representing a viable growth model and try to embrace the, the Chinese way as far as, as government and statecraft is concerned? And, and is it actually viable on, on the African continent or would it be a miscalculation on the part of, of these countries? Maybe the circumstances and conditions just don't provide for that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think, um... I think it's basically, in terms of how widespread this is, um, it it would make sense actually to look at um, it, it's ebb and flow, that there are these perceptions of who are the great powers or who are the aspirations for models. I mean, not long ago, it was Turkey. Everybody wanted to emulate the Turkish model. It was this uh, secularism meets uh, all things that everybody wanted. Um, and then, you know, that kind of goes away, something else comes back. In, in many ways, that's, that's sort of where we are with China. It's, it's this sort of this peak moment of both being able to see what is going on in China, uh, as opposed to the 1970s and 80s and 90s, when that exposure, the level of exposure wasn't that great in, in terms of, of, of Africans. But at the same time, um, but at the same time, I, I think, I think there's, um, the, the, of course, I can cite Afrobarometer surveys, Afrobarometer surveys, both in the last, the, the, the 2014 and 15 round, as well as the one from last summer. They basically are all showing sort of positive uh, perceptions of China in the continent. So the surveys are conducted in 36 or 37 African, across 37 African countries. And they ask Africans basically a bunch of questions. Some of them are about China. And um, the answers were overwhelmingly positive, but this doesn't mean that um, um, that it's all sort of a, a kind of a positive, good story, kind of a fairy tale story in that way at all. We see a lot of challenges to China from the continent. We saw that through COVID-19 and the treatment of African diaspora in China. We keep seeing that in terms of uh, challenging Chinese uh, infrastructure projects that have impacts on uh, environment, have impacts on uh, indigenous popula populations' rights to uh, land ownership, for example, and other issues. There's a whole lot of diverse voices and challenges. And um, But what's important about this, and, and I will finish uh, this answer with this, is that it's important that this kind of reaction comes from within the continent and not become some, some sort of bargaining chip that other powers are using against China, not for the purpose of advancing any interests that African populations and peoples have, but for the purpose of this sort of great power politics game. Um, so I think that it's important to note and work really seriously through these challenges, but to, in doing so, giving voice to people from within the continent and not falling in the trap of sort of this, tit, you know, for that sort of um, big kind of great politic um, rivalry uh, kind of politics. Yeah, one, one more question uh, before you go, Lena. Um, just getting back to something you mentioned about kind of uh, charting alternative paths. And if we, 
if you if we just look for example and i just wanted to ask you about vaccines because you mentioned this kind of sort of rhetoric about vaccine diplomacy so that aside and just to broaden it out a little bit beyond beyond china we we've, we've talked about how there's also a way in which um the policies of, of vaccines where uh, i would say china japan uh even how vietnam handled covid can be seen as alternative uh, paths or ways uh, to think about drug economies or to think about public goods can you say can you i mean what are you what are, what are you view, your views on on that on that kind of politics sort of a way as you said from this kind of bargaining chip uh you know global uh, this kind of great power great power contest and more towards like um and beyond i suppose what world was talking about before this this kind of authoritarian state capitalism as a model um these kind of other there there are other things that are also part of this conversation yeah and yeah thank you Sean for that question i I've ex i expected actually to see a little bit more uh inspiration um and a little bit more positive um uh, perceptions of the way that the chinese government handled the covid-19 um here essentially in algeria and and, and through uh, exposure to what uh people are saying in the media across the continent uh because at some some point if you remember in march about Mar march 2020 about march of of last year there were all kinds of um social media coverage of these really basically light speed hospitals being built uh, across china basically 24 hours you have a hospital um and basically the the, the messaging uh by the, the chinese government at the time was to try to show capacity to show that because it's so central so it's, it's, uh, the governance of the country is so centralized under the ccp that you're able to achieve so much so fast and that your quick reaction to the covid-19 pandemic is going to be a lot more centralized and more efficient in that way i expected honestly to see a lot more positive um impacts of those images and those messaging in africa than i actually found um it's 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 interesting what what i found to be the main um uh, lesson especially here in algeria where there are no vaccines there's no plan for vaccinating anyone um vaccine there's not even 1% of the population that has been vaccinated uh, yet and it's already june um the, the sense is that um the country needs to build its own infrastructure for producing these things uh even if it doesn't have the technology to to invent the vaccine that it should have a production unit um and 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 the government is in to basically walking going towards that direction of making itself independent of at least that distribution chain that if it's not able to invent it make it it's able to produce it second hand uh, and and that would actually shorten the distance between um you know people's arms and jabs essentially uh and and that is what's going on right now is that is is that you know uh realizing how dependent um we are on you know technology providers on health vaccine providers on all these things that there is a conversation towards rebuilding restructuring um these very vital uh, institutions uh, domestically that's a that's a good note to end this part of the the program with Lina Benadala 
Um, you've been a great guest. This was really informative. And stick around when, because I think at the end we want to we wanna just come back for a little bit. So our next guest is our final guest is uh, Abdul Rahim Lema, who's uh, from Benin. And he is a Yenxing scholar of Peking University, where he completed a master's degree in China studies, focusing on politics and international relations. His research focused on South-South cooperation, triangular cooperation, and the growing Sino-African security and development relations. Just as, a, as, a, as an opening question, because I know, Abdul, you have written about this on Africa as a country on the website, and I would recommend that people go read some of your pieces. When Africans uh, migrate from the continent, we usually think of them as um, going either to Europe or the Americas, but a lot of Africans do go to Asia. So from your experience um, and from your experience being in, in uh, China, how big is this uh, uh, migration or movement? Um, and can you say a little bit about like, who are these, who are these Africans who go to China, to, to China and just more widely Asia? And why do they pick Asia? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me around. And thank you for the invitation. Um, to answer your question, I think um, we need to keep in mind that in the Western world, there is the so-called the crisis of migration. And also the fact that migration has now become not only a political, politically speaking, domestic issue, but also um, interstate relations, in the sense that uh, the, the issue of moving around, people moving around has been, you know, securitized. So which makes it very difficult for Africans, generally speaking, to, you know, get visas to, say, the European Union um, member countries or even to the United States, especially under Donald Trump. Um, I think that, that, that is one thing. Um, the other factor is also that, you know, as China grows, China has become a kind of model uh, because considering just um, less than 50 years ago, um, China was a backward country to use the concept quote to quote um, compared to you know, African countries, but today being able to pull itself out of you know, poverty and becoming a great you know, power, um, it also an inspiration. So um, as for the communities like African communities in China, I think uh, one could distinguish three kinds, three types. Um, the first one whose history is very long are the traders, like African traders in, you know, um, first Hong Kong and then uh, moving on to the southern part of China, including Guangzhou and Shenzhen, um, which basically explains, you know, the growth of China, like the ability of doing business, basically, uh, become, becoming, you know, a growth, you know, space, a market space for trading goods, um, especially cheap goods. So that explains um, the pulling factor toward the country. Um, the second type of you know, uh, immigrant or African diaspora you find in China, um, now the growing one are the students like myself uh, who go there to study because as we know through the South-South cooperation or even under uh, FOCAC, uh, China has been pledging and also like um, uh, keeping its promises in terms of training African, you know, not only students, but also officials. So um, due to that fact, many African students get scholarship or they also go there to study on their own, uh, basically through um, their own financial support. But um, the scholarship side is um, the, 
the largest or scholarship student, uh, the largest community of Africans uh, throughout uh, China. And the, the third type are diplomats, like state officials and so on and so forth. But focusing on those two, like traders and um, students, I think those are the ones that get the chance to interact with the Chinese, uh, their Chinese counterparts, uh, their Chinese people basically on their daily lives. Um, not only in the marketplace for traders, but also uh, at schools. Um, so that helps explain um, the growing interaction between the two, basically from um, um, the concept of people-to-people -people exchange, because we know that China-Africa relations um, have uh, has mostly been written um, through state-to-state -state or government-to-government -government relations. But I think uh, the reality today is a growing uh, trend of people interacting. Um, the reverse is also true, like from Chinese people traveling to African countries uh, for trade and you know looking for some other opportunities. Thanks. That was actually a very comprehensive breakdown of of who is in China, and I'm sure we can also generalize that to the rest of of Asia and. I want to bring back what Lina was mentioning earlier, which is the surge of incidents of racism and targeted discrimination against African migrants in, in China in particular, and some reported in, in broader Asia. And it was, it was noteworthy because African ambassadors, as you written about in China, issued a joint complaint against the foreign ministry. So, I mean, does this racism of, of ordinary migrants in, in Asia shatter myths about the, the depth of closeness between the two continents? Was, was that moment last year sort of important to sort of reorient how we understand the relationship between, between China and, and Africa, as well as Asia and Africa? And can you, before you answer it, can you also, perhaps as part of it, also revisit some of that history? In other words, one of the questions which we didn't ask earlier from, from either um, Chris or Lina was how much of, of that, of these kind of relations between the two continents are mostly the relations between great men or yeah. between kind of states. And it has very little uh, effect at a mass level among regular people. And I'm curious, particularly yeah, about Asia. And I, I know we're just talking, the example we're mostly talking about is China because China is so dominant in this relation um but how much of how much of that of of, of the racism that we see now is new uh, and how much of it is is widespread um and how you know it, 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 was it did did any of these kind of bandung style third world politics could it even like do anything to it could it change it um thank you so much uh, for bringing back uh, that essential point I think before moving on to uh, the incident or the racism, you know, uh, crisis uh, that uh, took place last year in April 2020, I think it's important to keep in mind that racism basically, um, again, focusing on China because, you know, the largest community, um, African community, are basically located in the country. Um, I think there is no doubt. I mean, um, there is no doubt that, you know, the issue has been there, has always been there. Um, and the issue will always, you know, be there, um, you know, before and after, you know, COVID crisis. And essentially, um, one distinction point from my point of view is that I think there is the politics of state or the official, you know, politics, the official narrative, 
and also like the the politics there is also the politics of you know uh people like students like myself in china or you know african traders in the country um the official you know politics or the official narrative is the, is the one polished because uh there are great statements of you know china being a friend of african countries and african countries also stating their love affairs toward the country um but beyond that i think it's important to keep in mind uh that the reality actually is you know uh, the daily life or the, the lived reality i would say um is you know different in the sense that the narrative the official narrative does not always you know um um show or depict the you know uh daily lives or the daily experiences um going back to racism incident like the history has been or history has been repeating itself uh starting from you know chinese student you know um beating african student uh in various college, co colleges or the various universities throughout you know chinese cities uh even um long before china became uh, has become you know start to become what it is today like a great power has such uh, we had that incident in, in in beijing um where um african student uh, basically got you know beaten and that demonstration to show that you know there is a narrative of uh, you know africa being or china being Af you know a friend of african countries but the reality is pretty different so that brings me to uh, the incident last year <laughs> uh yes i think uh willy was right to point out that you know uh there were diplomatic reaction um unlike what you know used to be uh because um in china africa relations usually when it comes to you know uh, incident like this like conflicting you know incident that calls into you know questioning the nature of that relationship um it goes uh you know under the carpet basically no one says anything but i think last year's incident could be seen as you know a breaking point in the sense that you know there was a reaction from you know um african nationals not only in china but also back uh, back at home we saw that in nigeria we saw that in in kenya we saw that you know um throughout african countries and also like uh, parliamentary uh, members of you know uh parliament like reacting beyond like the diplomatic from the foreign ministry or you know deep you know um ambassadors in you know uh in china where actually uh many ambassadors you know send or sign an open letter to the foreign ministry like protesting uh, the incident and also calling for you know a quick um you know uh action from the chinese government but i think yeah although that is you know laudable um i think there should um you know there are more steps that could be taken in the sense that yes after that reaction basically uh, the issue um is no longer talked about for example the, the incident passed has if you know um it was not anything but i think that was actually an opportunity that african countries could seize to redefine their you know relation with um the the asian giant um in the sense that i think the incident opened up, you know a door in allowing african countries to push for more say in the bilateral relation in the sense that you know uh, beyond regardless of how smooth the diplomatic relations are i think it's important to recognize that you know not only is it uh, is it unbalanced 
but also like most of the shots are called by China. And th th this is, from my perspective at least, is a missed opportunity. And, um, but also broadly speaking, in terms of uh, COVID-19 and the impact it has on you know, China's you know, Africa relations beyond uh, the official one, I think there is the perspective in terms of you know, African communities in China of being more squeezed. Um, before COVID, for example, one could, you know, there, there was always a possibility of people staying illegal. But with COVID and the growing, you know, um, technology, uh, including facial recognition, for example, I think it's much more challenging today uh, for someone to stay, uh, you know, beyond their visa, um, uh, the validity of their visa in the country. So that shows you the way, you know, um, crisis, health crisis that like this one also has an impact on, you know, um, communities, including African communities in, in China, for example. Mm. So I think this is, this is a great point to sort of try and consolidate the episode that we've just had. And if our other guests are available, then they're welcome to jump, jump on. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, talking about what you've just described now, I'm curious to know how is, how is Africa perceived? So what does Africanness mean in Asia? So we've always known that in the Western world, Africa had this association as being the Conradian heart of darkness. At some point, Africa was rising and it was this great place of, of industrious youth who were starting their own small businesses and who were gonna you know, elevate everyone out of poverty. But we don't really hear much about what Africa means in the eyes of ordinary Asians. Um, and I'm curious to know, yeah, and Chris, you can, you can, you can yeah. also jump in there. Can you hear me? Um, yes. Just to chime in, I mean, I, I appreciate your question, but there's also something about the question that frustrates me uh, just yeah. to register this. And it's, it's more specific to the fact that, I mean, you have, uh, it's for lack of a better expression, you have Africans of Asian descent. You have, you know, you have South Africans who, uh, who, who are Chinese South African. You have Indian South Africans and so forth. So this sort of discrete worldview where you have Asia, Africa, uh, Asian China, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this is something that I mean. These are huge issues, which I and long conversations. So I don't pretend to to, you know, that, that we would be able to talk about it completely. But I, this is something that frustrates me about China-Africa relations and Asia-Africa relations, that is that it can neglect the fact that, you know, you have long histories of, of um, you know, Chinese residents in South Africa. Of course, there's an imperial history to this. You have Indian communities across, um, you know, East Africa, Southern Africa. You have Lebanese communities in West Africa. Um, there are all these connections. And the reason why we don't really talk about them or they don't show up in scholarship is because there's still this imperial epistemology, this, this set of imperial epistemologies about what is Africa, what is Asia. Um, and the area studies model in the United States basically is, you know, a replica of this this imperial worldview where you have discrete continents with that are highly racialized, that have their own histories where there are no real connections. And this is a source of frustration for me. And, and when I did the, 
when I did my book, Making World After Empire, it was very much about trying to break that area studies paradigm and you know, really take seriously the fact that you have these connections. And that's why the Bandung moment is, to me at least, so important, not just at the time, but in the present, because it actually provides a foundation for thinking about these connections, both preceding Bandung and also as discussed by Lena and Abdu, you know, just connections after, uh, well after Bandung in the present. So anyway. I, mean, I, I, get, I get your frustration with that, but I think there's also like, for I, I would say that outside the US, many of these conversations, um, there's a certain matter of factness to them. For example, I, I don't think anybody in South Africa questions say the, and I wrote about this recently about the kind of founding of Islam in South Africa, there is no, uh, uh, the Muslim community, for example, in South Africa, a large part of it, I mean, of course, there's one part that always gets downplayed, which is its Africanness, but a large section of it came to South Africa with slavery in the 16th century. And there is a way in which uh, nobody questions, unlike in other places where there, there is, you know, Orientalism or Islamophobia, there is, there is just, the, they're they're part of South Africanness, you know. They they South African. There's no. They've been nobody. Nobody questions their like position in the struggle or their position as a government minister. They are South African. So there's places in which there are tensions around these identities. As you said, this is this is something for another long conversation. Whether it's Kenya, Uganda. I just read the other day in Kenya, there there's a debate about making Indian Kenyans or Asian Kenyans of Asian origin to make them another one of the 40 odd tribes of Kenya. So like, you know, so those, those, those debates, uh, the, uh, those things are, are long. And I think we, we shouldn't, I agree with you, we should not underestimate, but I think outside the US, for example, if you think in South Africa, you know, which is an academic space, I kind of know well, there are Indian, there's an Indian ocean, kind of very vibrant Indian ocean, uh, studies that are, that are being done at Wits University where they connect themselves to other universities, you know, elsewhere on the continent. Lena probably knows this way better than I do, but there's a way vibrant scholarship going on between uh, China and Africa. Abdu mentions like the exchanges of students and so on. But I think what, what I think maybe we sort of driving at is at a very popular level, right? There is There are discourses that always circulate. And in the West, that I'd be curious, like in the in the Chinese, public sphere or probably maybe Japan, I think less so in some of the other smaller countries. Um, what it, it was that, is, is that sort of thing happening there too in that way in Africa keeps shifting? Like Africa to, is like, to jump in there. This, then it's this, then it's this. Yeah, to jump in quickly, I think I think friend of the of the show, Bhakti Sringapura puts it really well in, in the comments. She says, unfortunately, those imperial epistemologies have been internalized by Africans and Asians, you know, terms yeah. we need to problematize at some point too. And this is a huge issue in terms of building relations across these identities. So Absolutely. yeah, this is what I'm getting at. This is uh, precisely, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think uh, Chris, Chris is right about, you know, that frustration. But also, like there is a reality to which we have to, you know, um, at least recognize. If you are not able to do anything about it, I think I think the least we can do is recognize it. Uh, one example, one could, you know, a prominent example. Even last year, it did happen again. Um, the incident starting from the detergent incident, 
like the concept of blackness, the concept of, you know, I think the commentator put it quite, quite right in the sense of internalizing that, uh, you know, uh, imperial, you know, way of be, being great in a sense, or the, that imperial way of being the standard, basically, um, I think is quite prominent. Um, I can speak of China, the case I know, you know, better. Um, for example, you know, the gala event, like, you know, for the, you know, Chinese New Year celebration and so on and so forth. I think that reflects that. Um, and these are like issues, they are unfortunate, but I think uh, they do happen. Last year, it did happen again. Um, and people were asking, like, where do we start? Like, because the first was, you know, was considered to be a mistake. But, you know, after a mistake repeating itself, I think uh, then uh, people should ask questions of, you know, um, what it is really, how, how it is, what perception um, African have, or what, what, what are the perception people have of, you know, Africanness in a sense, um, in China and in Asia, broadly speaking. So I think like, yeah, these are, you know, important discussions we need to have. Lena, I think you wanted to jump in. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add. I think I, I agree with the frustration that Chris uh, um, put forward because, in in a way, it also just oversimplifies um, all the complexities of, of of the histories of interactions, and 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 it just makes you know very easy categories, and 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 that's very problematic on so many levels. But as Lima was uh, describing the detergent incident and the gala incident, I also was thinking of when Black Panther was screening and it came out in China and we could see uh, just, you know, regular Joe's, uh, average Joe's reviews on WeChat and QQ and the comments we were getting about how it was received in China. I mean, it, it gives you a bit of an idea um, of this very problem of internalizing um, the uh, representations uh, of, of blackness and what what blackness means. And and the, yeah, and, and and a lot of those reviews. I mean, obviously, it's 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 always a mixed bag. Right? You can find this and the other. Um, but you know, a lot of those reviews were 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 quite revealing of how. Uh, blackness is is, is perceived um, in in China, and I suppose this is this is why to to echo what Chris was saying just now. This is why the Bandung moment is so important to recall as a as a usable past to use your turn of phrase, Chris. Because as you were saying, um, Africa was the was the destination for that conference, and I'm curious to hear you unpack that now because. When you describe that this conference had 29 national representatives, only six of those countries were actually located on the continent. But there was a way in which everyone identified with Africa, that Africa went beyond, as we've been discussing, these imperial epistemologies of, of demarcating a specific kind of racialization or geographical uh, origin. Africanness meant this political posture that anyone could could adorn, um, including uh, Asians. Let, let me make a few quick remarks. Um, one thing, I see a difference between Africanness and Blackness. 
I see Africanness as more capacious and and blackness, of course, relating to blackness. I mean, it's, but I think too often they're seen as synonymous. And just to go to a quick reference, um, Ashil Mbembe has this important article. He has a number of important articles, but um, everybody's drawn to necropolitics. He has, a, he has an article called African Modes of Self-Writing. And he talks a lot about this issue. And he basically says that the concept of an Africanness that is not black is simply unthinkable. And basically, we need to make we need to make an Africanness that's more capacious thinkable. And I think you know that's 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 a project that's well worth undertaking. To get to to get to your remark, um, uh, William, about you know the destinations of Afroasianism, just to give some brief examples, like Nasser, um, after the Bandung Conference, established the Afroasian People's Solidarity Organization in Cairo. Um, Nasser was very committed to this idea of, of Afro-Asianism as being a foundation for, for thinking about third worldism. Um, APSO proved to be much more cultural and um, I don't want to say less diplomatic, but more oriented around um, the exchange of ideas among um, artists, writers, journalists, um, cultural workers. Um, and it also held, held a number of, of meetings um, on the African continent. Um, and this actually goes to, you know, one of the earlier remarks too, do we see Bandung as simply, you know, a moment of great men? You know, how did it respond to people on the ground? Uh, how did it resonate with people on the ground? One thing that my book does is actually get at that social history. I mean, I'm trained as a social historian. I'm not a diplomatic historian. And a lot of the, um, contributions to the to the book, the my edited book, are looking at the ways that Afro-Asianism gained traction on the ground. So another example would be the Tazara Railway um, that links Zambia and Tanzania um, that was, you know, funded by China. You know, this is an early example of the kind of um, development diplomacy that the PRC um, still uses today. Um, I look at the life of uh, the exile life of Alex Laguma, who became involved in the Afro-Asian Writers Association, published the journal Lotus. Um, so you have all these, you know, projects that are sort of mediating Afro-Asianism at different levels. It's not just about diplomacy. It's not just about, you know, these large, you know, development projects. It's also about, you know, intellectuals recognizing that you know, the experience of colonialism in Africa is similar to the experience of colonization in, in, in Asia, and there's there are things to talk about. Um, and so Luguma is a figure, a figure there. And so when I say destination, uh, it's not as if there's a single narrative. Um, it's important to think about, you know, the multiplicity of narratives over time. And if anything, you know, the thing about Bandung is, for me at least, and I, I talk about this in, in the new preface to the second edition of my book, it's, you know, it's more of a ripple effect. It's, it's not so much, again, a single narrative, a single set of causal connections, um, but rather, you know, we have to think about the ways in which um, this moment rippled uh, in different ways to the present, but also in a sense rippled back to the past to sort of reorganize how we understand the history of Asia-Africa relations. And um, anyway, the, the point being that, um, you know, there's, there's not 
a linear history. And I don't want to suggest, I don't want to overdetermine Bandung in that sense either to say that, you know, it is the moment, <laughs> the starting point. Um, it's, it's an important one. And if anything, it forces us to rethink um, the connections between these two continents. And again, to, 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 to decolonize them, not just decolonize, not just decolonize in a political sense, um, but, you know, again, to go back to this issue of epistemology, you know, thinking about how we have inherited certain ways of looking at the world, certain ways of constructing questions about the past, and how the continental logic that we still work within um, bears traces of imperial knowledge. And I think, you know, we need to work against that and just sort of understand. And to go back to Sean's point about, I mean, about Cape Town, I mean, Cape Town's one of the most Afro-Asian cities on, on the African continent. And, you know, it's, it's important to understand the deep history of, uh, you know, the deep connections with Malaysia through slavery, um, you know, the fact that, you know, Cape Town has the oldest mosque um, on the African continent, or excuse me, the oldest mosque um, in the Southern hemisphere. You know, there are things like this that I think are important to this history. So, except, except, I mean, again, we could go on and on and on. And I don't yeah. want to make a last comment just on that Cape Town thing. It's also interesting in which, um, and I, 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 this, this piece I wrote, which was for, uh, um, it's a new initiative. I think Lena is part of it too, which is the one based at Columbia with, um, with Zakaria. Uh, Mampili and uh, Hisamahidi and Mark Lynch. The, I think it's called the program on, this is terrible because I'm on the board, <laughs> the program for the research um, in Africa. Uh, but anyway, one of the things I found interesting about that debate was how also the the, the way that the history of Islam gets written in, in Cape Town um, and, and to foreground its Asian-ness to, to not make it African. So there, So yes, yes, there is a way in which Islam in Cape Town is, as you said, the way in which there's a dynamic relationship between its Africanness and its Asianness, but mm -hmm. it's also done often at the expense of its Africanness. So Islam yeah. came more more than half of the slaves who came came either from uh, Southeast Africa or they came from Madagascar or the islands, and they were visibly black African. But in the retelling, it's only because the the, the scholars, the really the people who wrote the stuff down. They often came as political exiles. You know, it's a class issue. They came from the from from, from Asia. They then shape Islam, and that that, and that other part, that kind of like the lived Islam. This, you know, if you want the street Islam, that Islam goes to the back, the African, and that's the one associated with Africa. And so, in today, it becomes Islam is from Asia. Islam is from Asia. No, Islam was also from Africa when it right. came to that. So that, you know, so it's, a, it's always complicated, as you said. It's yeah. dynamic, and that's in the decolonizing of it. That's the work we, we have to do. So I, I'm with you on that, yeah. And just to be quick, I don't mean to idealize either. I mean, there's certainly elements of anti-blackness in, in you know these sets of politics. And so I'm attentive to that too. It's, it's just, you know, being aware of these different layers and, you know, being attentive to both the colonial legacies we still live with and, you know, oh, trying to deconstruct them. And then also, but at the same time, not idealizing, you know, uh, you know, the kind of third worldism that also came out of Bandung. I mean, I think, you know, there, there are good reasons for critiquing its limitations as well. 
So. Abdul, you wanted to say something quickly, and then then I think yeah, Wells can um, tell us to get yeah. out of here. <laughs> no, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm happy to stay here forever. <laughs> yeah, just quickly to you know say something about uh, Samba Sex question in terms of uh, whether uh, the Bandung conference failed because you know it came too early. Um, I think uh, a good point to start from my perspective is you know um, what one considers a success like success and failure for that particular conference. And I think being a child of its time, um, I think it was the only time it could have taken place because in the 60s, yes, there were more African uh, independent uh, countries in the African continent, but also with the growth of that independent state came the division. And one example from my perspective again would be um, the organization of African Union, uh, Nkrumah having one idea that uh, got dampened, uh, you know, in, in, you know, the African, you know, conference basically deciding on the future of the continent. And if one is to add that to, you know, uh, growing competition between China and, uh, you know, uh, the Soviet Union that led to uh, Sino-Russian war, border war, I think that shows the division. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, it was only that time that it could have taken place. And in terms of success, uh, my way of, you know, considering it being a success is that it has given a foundation. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, you consider that word being boring, but it gave a solid uh, you know, foundation for what is now called the Global South. And what if one reads uh, texts on, you know, South-South cooperation, I think whichever relation or whichever principles, uh, you know, is traced back back to that to that conference. So we, we see how history or how that historical event has, you know, um, become the basics or the foundation of, you know, uh, today's, you know, dialogue in terms of, you know, uh, developing world, in terms of, you know, cooperating between those countries to, you know, promote development and alleviate poverty and so on and so forth. Speaking of, of, of foundations, thank you for that, Abdurrahim. I think this would be a good place for us to, to conclude. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, Africa as a country is, I mean, for the people that that make decisions, I'm thinking of the guy on, on, on my right here. We're always thinking about having conferences. Uh, and, and <laughs> we're, always, we're always thinking of having conferences in, in different parts of the world. And now we need to have an Africa as a country festival. And we're always anxious for all of this to end. And this was a great preview of what a festival idea is. Could be and, like this kind of, you know, and maybe one in Bandung. I mean, maybe yeah. that's trying to, to tempt fate and and history too much. But um, who knows? Watch but this before you before you before you sign us out, I I forgot to tell everybody that um, Chris is a contributing editor. So is Lena, and Abdul has been a a solid contributor of Africa's country. If we left that out, but a lot of this is also a lot of what you saw here is the stuff that that makes up Africa as a country, all Absolutely. these wonderful people and their great ideas. And you may not, and if you don't see their writing on the site all the time, they're doing a ton of other stuff behind the scenes. So this is that kind of, if there was an office, I bet you this was what the office conversation physically could have been like. So this this was wonderful, yeah. And and we're happy to share it with, with everyone. So thank you everyone for watching. Thank you again deeply to Chris, to Abdurrahim Lema, to Lina for appearing on. Uh, please, please, please read Chris's book because that's when you're going to get a, a good And read Lena's book. And read Lena's book. book as Lina's well. Book. Released last year. 
Uh, Abdul Rahim is, is hopefully writing one at the moment. After this, he's going to go back to the keyboard. Um, and we look forward to some of these ideas factoring. Um, and thank you to, to Sean, my excellent co-host, and to Antoinette Engel, our excellent producer. And it's been a great episode. And the next one will be just as good. So stay tuned for that one as well. But until then, see you next time.